also this evening, am I close enough to the microphone? Everybody can hear? Okay. So this evening, I would like to look at uh, three qualities which are considered very essential when we cultivate Zen meditation. And it's great faith, great courage, and great questioning. Great faith, in a way, is kind of, you know, this uh, faith in our potential, in the cherishing of certain value. Courage gives us energy, enthusiasm, and questioning clarity. So I want to look at them uh, one by one. And great faith, in a way, brings me to the first question, which is, why do we meditate? In a way, you are... You have done two days of meditation and uh, you might have found it's not easy all the time and you might think, why am I doing this? You know, what am I doing here? Why do I meditate? And in a way, looking at our motivation, I would say looking at our motivation to start, what, what is it that makes us begin in a way? And in a way, what is it that makes us continue? And so I would say one can have so many different reasons to start. A friend might do it, or you might have heard about it, or somebody recommended it, or there are so many different ways. And I like to look at a few different uh, motivations in terms of life story. The first one is a motivation of Master Hyobong, who was a master of Master Kuzan, who was our teacher in Korea. And what is interesting with Master Hyobong is that he, he was a Korean in the beginning of the century, in the 1900s, and this was also a time of occupation by the Japanese. And he was one of the rare persons, after doing law study, to be allowed to be a judge. And he was a judge for 10 years, and he became increasingly uncomfortable with being a judge because finally one day he had to pass a death sentence and he felt, I can't do this. I can't condemn somebody to die. I can't do that. And so he was kind of faced with this choice, with this dilemma, and he just disappeared. He just left everything behind. And then for three years, he was just going from village to village selling sweets, just toffees, living a very simple life. And then he thought, what, what's the best way to use my life? And then he decided to become a monk and he decided to enter a monastery. And because he started late, so to speak, uh, in his 40s, he really practiced hard. He was really well known for how much sitting he did. And one of the times where he sat and when he had his first breakthrough was going into a hut. You might feel a little confined here, but he stayed in a hut which was totally locked for a year and a half. And he said, I will not leave this hut until I have a breakthrough using the questioning. And then somebody once a day would give him some food through a little hole. And then finally one day he had a breakthrough and then he broke the door and he went out. But he still continued to meditate. 
So in a way, he decided, slowly, there was this kind of life change in terms of wanting to do meditation. If I look at Master Kuzan, it's very interesting. Also, he was in a kind of relatively Buddhist family. He did not think too much about it. He became a barber. He had a very simple, ordinary life. And then he became ill. He felt unwell. He felt really without energy. And he just had to lie down all the time. And he really could not do much. And then his friend came. And his friend was a Buddhist. And his friend looked at him, kind of just lying there without energy, feeling not so well. And his friend said to him, since a a board of the self-nature is originally pure, where does your illness lie? So, shall I repeat it? Mm. Okay. It's a little Zen-like. Since the abode, the place of the self-nature, the Buddha nature, is originally pure, where does your illness lie? Where is your illness? Where can you find it? And what is interesting is that then Master Kuzan, I would say, did a body scanning. And he looked through all his body to find where is this pain, where is this thing that is kind of constricting me, that is, and he could not find anything. And so already he felt much better. (laughs) And then his friend suggested he would feel even better if he went to do a three-month chanting session, reciting a certain mantra, the mantra of the Bodhisattva of Compassion, Homani Padmehum. And that's what he did. And he felt even better. So then he became a monk. So that's a good idea. Why not? (laughs) So he became a monk. And by then he was very enthusiastic. You know, ah, really, this is great stuff. You know, I feel so much better. Yes, I am going to do this retreat. And yes, I'm going to be awakened in three months. This was kind of like the, the, the idea. So he goes on to this retreat, 10 hours a day. He do more than the 10 hours because he really want to be awakened for the sake of everybody. A month pass, nothing. Two months pass, nothing. Two months and a half, nothing. Three months pass, nothing. And he's really disheartened. He says, well, I really tried so hard and I'm not awakened. Really. And then he had a vision of the Buddha. And then he realized, ah, it took six years for the Buddha to be awakened. Possibly I could take a little longer than three months. (laughs) And then he said after that, his great faith never weakened. After that, he really had the great faith in himself, in the practice. If I look at my own motivation, from a very young age, I wanted to save the world. And then, one major obstacle to that was when I was about 18 and living very freely. And I could see that outwardly, I could be very free. But inwardly, I could not be free. I was very idealistic. I wanted 
everybody to love each other. I wanted to love everybody. I wanted not to be selfish, etc., etc. And then I could see, I would get into this state, either of jealousy or anger or selfishness and very great contradiction with my aspiration and my experience. And I really felt I was not free. I could tell myself, don't be egoist. It had no effect whatsoever. And that's when I read the, the text by the Buddha, where he said, before you want to save others, possibly you could change yourself first. And I thought, that's a good idea, you know, trying to work on this inner freedom. And that's why I then became interested in meditation. And I must say it worked. I must say I'm quite, I also have great faith in the practice, in the meditation. And so, in a way, I think at the beginning, we start to do meditation for all kinds of weird and wonderful reasons. But then once we start to do meditation, over time, I think we feel like a coming home. That when we do meditation over time, it seems to me we do, do it less for a good reason, but we just do it for the sake of doing it. There is like a feeling of coming home, like a spiritual home. And I would say, to me, the meditation is like food for the spirit. Like we eat every day, and generally we don't think much of it because we're hungry and we need to eat. And I think meditation is the same. It is nurturing our being, nurturing ourselves. And so at that level, it's not so special. And I think that's why I think we have to be careful to equate meditation with special state. I think actually meditation is just very ordinary, just being aware, being present, but in a different way, where there is less grasping, less holding. And so I would say an act of meditation is an act of faith. Faith not in something outside of ourselves, but faith in our own potential. From a Zen point of view, it would be faith in our potential for wisdom and compassion. Faith in our Buddha nature. Not as something, but the possibility of something. The possibility of this very kind of uh, creative wisdom, creative compassion, similar to the one of the Buddha. But at the beginning, it is a little, we feel a little separate from the faith. At the beginning, we believe this is going to be good for us. I must do this. This is good for me. But I think over time, we kind of, something happened, and then we really kind of see that it works. And then the faith, I would say, is more experiential. And then it really becomes a great faith. And to me, this is when when I was in Korea, I really saw that. I was doing um, a three-month retreat like they do there. So you sit 10 hours a day, you get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and like here, you have a little job every day to do it. And my job then was at 4 o'clock. And so I would sit my 10 hours a day, what is this, what is this, what is this? And four o'clock, 
I used to be so upset because I had to wash the bathroom, communal bathroom, and there was a nun there. She was in the way. I could not clean. And, and so the first time I said, oh, by the way, could not you, you know, come at another time. I said, no, 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 I have to chant. I must be pure. I mean, I, no competition there. So, and what was interesting is that whenever I went to the bathroom, four o'clock, bang, ah, she's there again, really, pff, you know, ah, resentment, mm, irritation, and I would do my job. And then I would go back to, my, to the meditation. I would forget about it. What is this? What is this? What is this? <laughs> and it went on for two weeks. And then, after 15 days, I go there, and she's there, and it's totally fine. There is no irritation, nothing. And that's when I experience de-grasping. That actually is not something you contrive. I did not tell myself, I must be a good Buddhist, I must not be irritated. Not at all. But suddenly I saw just a sitting And to me, this is one of the most important effects of the practice. I know when we sit in meditation, and what do we do when we sit in meditation? A lot of the time, we wait for something special to happen. So we're going to wait, wait, nothing, nothing. This thing, it looks different, a little different. Yeah, 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 yeah. Starting to lift up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and we generally, you know, and as soon as we get excited, it goes, of course. But to me, of course, this can happen, and I might talk about it later. But to me, the most important thing about meditation is what I call the effect. It's a relief, releasing effect, a degrasping effect. So instead of holding tight on ourselves, we just by just the concentration and the inquiry, by either watching the breath or listening to sound in a certain way or asking the question, we develop this quietness and clarity which kind of dissolves the grasping so that then we can see, ah, I am not stuck anymore. To me, this is when great faith can arise, when we have the experience of degrasping. We kind of say, ah, and at, at one level it's not so special. It's just before we thought this is the way to be. Generally we think the way to be is to hold on, is to grasp. And then the more we meditate, we realize, no, I don't have to be that way. I can have a feeling of more stability, more openness, more spaciousness. And so in that way, we can in a way really develop this great faith where we can, you know, see something, can we, we let go, we don't grasp so much anymore. And to me, what was very interesting, in terms of great faith, was Master Cousin. Because we have all kind of ideas about, Stephen has uh, talked a little about Zen and expre- explained the koan and the funny stories and everything. And so often we have certain expectations of uh, Zen masters, you know, that they must be a little weird and wonderful and kind of thing like that. But to me, actually, I had the opposite experience with Master Cousin because after a while I translated, and as I translated for him or was around him, I realized that he was generally giving exactly the same rap. 
I knew the question, the answer by heart after, you know, four or five times. I knew it, you know, the way it would go, what he would ask. I used to kind of try to move the people along so we could get to the punchline and things like that. <laughs> and part of me was thinking, well, he's a Zen master. Could not he, you know, say a little something different, you know, for a chant? Because he always, you know, end up in, you must ask, what is this? That was a punchline, you know, what is this, what is it? And then I realized that what he was showing me was great faith in everyone. He did not think that the farmer lady has less chance than the scholar or the meditator or the monk or the nun. He saw everybody could do this. And they did not have to have a special story. They could have the same story. And that's when I really saw the great faith not only he had in himself, in the practice, but in everybody else. And then I started to look at this exchange very differently. So I would say, in a way, great faith is a ground of our practice. And then you have great courage. And great courage gives energy, activity, movement, perseverance. We can't just stay with great faith. We have to do something from the great faith. But there can be many different types of courage. For example, I mean, I don't know, some of you might have a little difficulty with the silence. And once I met a nun when I was doing some research many years back, and she had an incredible presence. She was like, she was just peeling potatoes, but I thought she had a certain presence, even peeling potatoes. And so I asked, who is she? And I was told she'd just been 10 years in silence. You know, and we have difficulty with a week in silence. But she did not do it because she was told to do it. She, was, she did it because of great faith and then because of great courage. Or once I was looking for this monk in Korea, I like to meet kind of during the free season, you could go and meet other masters. And I always look for masters or mistresses and try to kind of get great uh, teaching from them. That was my kind of a little hobby during the free season. And so I heard about this monk, that he was very special, because he worked all day and he meditated all night. So that was his speciality. That's what he was kind of known for. And so I was very interested. You know me, I mean, I had uh, just enough to do my 10 hours. Him, he could do all night and then he could work all day. I was very impressed by that. So I went to see him. So finally... I managed to find where he is. And it was one of the weirdest encounters. Because it was, he was the most humble person I have ever met in my life. And so here comes this Western nun. And, oh, great monk, please teach me something. He said, oh, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. He was, kind of <laughs> he was extremely shy. So it was very hard to get any teaching out of him. But even that. I felt, I felt it was a great teaching. And kind of, after that, I kind of uh, was a little more careful looking for these special people, <laughs> leaving them alone a bit. So in a way, great courage. People have great courage, and they do these things, but again, they're not copying anything. It's just out of great faith. And they have this great courage just to do it. But then for us, we're sitting here, what would be great courage for us? 
And to me, it's not to be 10 years in silence, or it's not to work all day and sit all night. But for us, the courage is to go beyond our limits, to go beyond our habits. Because this is really, if you look, when you sit in meditation, when you walk in meditation, notice, what is it that is stopping you from cultivating concentration and inquiry? It's habits, it's pattern. For example, mental patterns. You have had two days of meditation, and possibly I could predict that one of your favorite activity, possibly, during these two days, has been to daydream. This is a very nice activity when you sit in meditation. The time passed very nicely, you know. <laughs> I ring the bell, oh, already it's finished. And it's very interesting daydream. You sit in meditation, what's the breath, or listening to sound, or asking, what is this? And then there is this little thought, very seductive. If I had, if I was, and woof, I go in this wonderful film, mono-reality, where I do everything. I am the actor, the producer, the director, the scriptwriter. I even sell the peanuts. <laughs> and it's wonderful, because everybody do things according to my wishes. So it's very nice. And then I tinker with it, improve it a bit. Oh, yes, you know, they could say that. Mm, that would be nice, you know. But this is, me, me, when I started meditating in Korea, it took me three months before I realized I was not meditating. I was daydreaming about going to a hermitage, practicing very hard, becoming awakened, saving everybody. I was daydreaming about meditating. It was much easier than concentration and inquiry, but that was not meditation. Or another one we do, which is also another favorite activity, and this is ruminating. Ruminating. So you are here, everything is fine. I, I assume you're relatively okay, not too much pain, you're okay, you're sitting here, and suddenly you remember something somebody said two years ago. They said this, it was so painful. How could they say this about me? I mean, it's so painful. I mean, really, how could they say this? Really? And they're really nasty, aren't they? You know? And they always say this kind of thing. And then you bring the pain from the past in the present. You ruminate over it for a little while. Then you bypass the present and you go into the future. And generally, you plot revenge. You know, then you say, the next time I see them, they'll say that, but I'll say that, and I'll get them. Very compassionate. And what is interesting is that generally they'll never say what you scripted for them to say, and then you can't say the clever thing which would have been so nice to say. And so in a way, rumination, trying to really leave the past where it is. We can learn from the past, but it's behind. And the future, the best things to do for the future, actually, is just to meditate now. So that by developing stability and openness, we can meet whatever happened in the future. So in a way, trying to see daydreaming, 
coming back to the question, rumination, coming back to the breath or the listening. Then another one is also what we can experience, what can sometimes kind of limit us, is emotional habits. It's kind of, you know, we might be anxious or we might be angry or we might... And again, it will... I think the meditation can help us to be with it in a different way. But often we grasp, we identify with the emotion and then we go into the story of the sadness, of the anger, of the anxiety, and then generally it magnifies and magnifies and magnifies. And so in a way to see that actually if we come back to the question of the breath or the sounds, actually we come back to being with the feeling in a different way. And to me this was a revelation. When I was in Korea, sometime we did this uh, all-night sit. We tried once, you know, Five days non-sleeping, sitting all time, day and night sitting. It's very effective. You get so tired, you can't even be distracted. You don't have the energy to think something else. And if you just bring the question, it just goes by itself. At that level, it's very, but you get a little spaced out too, anyway. But my problem with the all night was not the sitting. My problem was going to the bathroom to the toilet outside at, in the night because I was very afraid of the dark. You know, <gasps> there is somebody behind with a knife. He's going to get me. <sighs> and I have my heart palpitation. And so I went to Master Kuzai. I said, you know, I'm so afraid. This all night sit, you know, what can I do? And he said, go back to the question. And I thought, ah, what is this? What is this? It's going to be like a magical talisman. It's going to protect me from the bad guy out there. Yes. So I go out. What is this? What is this? What is this? And I did this, you know, for three nights. And then it worked. But why did it work? It was not a magic talisman. But it was a gift of the present. That instead of going into the fear, I did, what is this? What is this? And when I did, what is this? I came back to, I was, it was two o'clock in the night. I was in this temple in the middle of nowhere. Who would know that I was there to come and get me? <laughs> so, reality. And so to me, this is actually what is interesting with the anchor, that it be the breath or the question, is that by bringing us to the present, it brings us to this multi-perspectival moment. Instead of going into abstraction and then we create all kinds of fantasy. But the what is this allowed me to come back to right here, right now. Nothing is going on. Nothing is dangerous. Then... We have the third physical habit, which might kind of, kind of sometimes limit us. And I would say it's a physical habit of comfort. We are so used in this modern world that things are relatively easy. 
When I lived in Korea, things were really, especially then, now it's very different. But in the 70s, the temple was quite poor and everything was really simple and often did not work. Electricity did not work, the water did not work. I mean, a lot of things did not work necessarily. And it was a very simple lifestyle. And then, in a way, coming back to the West and living in the West, I can see, you know, how in Korea, if there was no electricity, you know, I would not be too worried. Here, it doesn't work. What? It doesn't work. What's going on? You know? And, you know, and in a way, we are so used to comfort. And I would say a retreat like we're doing here is challenging our level of comfort. No doubt. And I really kind of, you know, thank you for your sincere efforts to really do it because it's not such an easy retreat. But in Korea, for me, it was even worse. Getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning, sitting 50 minutes, 5 zero, then 10 minutes, walking, another 50 minutes, then 3 times in the morning, 4 times in the afternoon, 2 times in the evening, and like that. I could not do it. My first retreat, I could not do it. I would sit the first 50 minutes, I can't breathe, I can't do this. So I would do it once, and then I would find something much better to do, like washing the dishes or learning Korean. Then I would come back for the first session, for the first sitting of the next session. All right, okay, let's try this. You know, yes, what is this? Yep. Yes. All right. Oh. And again, again, I could not do it. I just, it was just too much. I could not, I could not, I could not really do it. And this went on for a few days. And then Master Kuzan came to sit with us. And then I saw him, ah, ah, he's, uh, okay, yes, yes, yes. What is this, what is it? I really tried hard for the, yes, yes, yes. And then at the end of it, I was so tired. I thought, he can stay, I am off. I really, I can't take this. I've learned Korean. And I went off, and he saw it. And when I came back, there was a dictionary and the leader of the hall who said, Master Kuzan said, Okchiro Chamta. I never forgot that. And I said, okay, Okchiro Chamta is to bear beyond strength. I said, ah, Master Kuzan tells me to bear beyond strength. And I said, well, it's true. They've been doing this for 800 years and nobody died of it. So possibly I can do it too. And it, to me, this was really my, uh, what really changed. I would say the, the first change in my meditation. After that, I did not miss one city. And I started to arrive first before anybody else. It did not become easier. But... I was not worried about it anymore. I was not anxious about it at all. It worked. Sometimes it was better, sometimes it was worse. I just did it. And that's why, I, I, in a way, I felt I was going beyond that physical habit of comfort, or not really, or kind of, ooh, but you don't know, ooh. And actually, it was possible. So in a way, the courage, the great courage, to see how a habit, 
to recognize them and to try within certain limit, of course, try to go beyond them. Then there is great questioning. And to see that faith and great faith and great questioning are complementary, they go together. And so it's an active, creative quality. And I think in a way we need to bring this great questioning in many different ways. There is a great questioning, of course, of asking what is this? And I'll talk more about it tomorrow. But I think also it's a great questioning that we can apply to our meditation itself. How are we using meditation? How are we meditating? And to see, sometimes meditation can be used as a means to, in a way to repress ourselves, or nearly to anesthetize ourselves. And we must be careful there. I remember once I met this architect, and he was also a meditation teacher, one of the first ones in France. He started very in the, in the late 50s, 60s, so very early day of meditation. And he became very enthusiastic about meditation. Yes, sitting, the breath. Mm, yes, yes. And so much so that in his office, architect office, big open plan architect office, he made a little meditation room for himself. And then he would say to everybody, I am going to meditate. And they would thought, oh no, not again, not again. Because whenever he came out of his meditation session, he was angry. And he would shout, and so finally somebody pointed it out to him, and he realized he was using the meditation to repress himself in such a way that then it had to come out in a burst, in explosion. And then he really saw he was not doing the right way, and then he changed the way he did it. So to be careful there. Also, to be careful how we use it. Because sometimes you can even grasp at the meditation itself. When we were in Korea, we, once I was, a, because I was a translator and the kind of the helper in many different ways, and I was asked to come and help out, could you talk to this fellow? Because there was one Western monk who had to meditate all the time, regardless, he had to meditate four hours every day, even during the free season, he had to meditate four hours, otherwise he kind of started to shake, and he has like withdrawal symptom. But what the, prob- the problem with him was that when he meditated, the whole place had to be 150% silent, otherwise he could not meditate. So he would be in his room trying to meditate, and next to him somebody might just move the sugar cube in the teacup and he would complain, this is too noisy, I can't meditate. So I kind of tried to sort it out. But to be careful, you know, sometimes to be too precious about meditation. Personally, I think, uh, I mean, we're lucky here to have all these sounds around us. But all the sound, if somebody cough, if somebody move, what is important to see is that actually each sound is a bell of mindfulness. Because you might be lost in some daydream. And then somebody coughs, hmm. and you come back to the body, you come back to the question, you come back to being here. So in a way, every sound that might arise is an opportunity to come back to the moment, 
to be awakened again, to be present again. Or there is a way we can use meditation and, and it's again, it's back to this feeling very calm. Often there is this association with meditation, with calmness. And this is when we just cultivate concentration. When we cultivate concentration, of course, we can have great calmness. But in a way, the calmness is not enough. We all need, also need the vipassana, the inquiry, the looking deeply. And once we had this fellow who came, another Western monk, and he came to Korea especially because he had this trouble. That when he was on an island with a dog, meditating on his own, he was totally fine. And he could attain great meditative state, great peace, great calm. It was fantastic. But as soon as he came back to the big meditation temple in Thailand, he would get into argument, he would get into trouble. Then he would go back to the island, wonderful meditative stay. Dog, totally nice, fine, meditative too. <laughs> back to the temple, big trouble. So finally he came to Korea, because in Korea it's a communal spirit. It's very community-minded. You don't do things on your own. You sit together, you eat together, you sleep together, you do everything together. So he thought, that should help me. I, it was, I mean, I was a translator and it was tough because time to time I was called because he was very argumentative and he would even shout at the top people in the hierarchy and so I would have to come and kind of try to smooth the feathers and things like that. But to me, I mean, he did not really, I don't know how much he learned that, though he tried, but to me he was a great teacher because I learned something with him is that he loved to pick an argument. So he would come to have tea with me. And then at the end, we would be having an argument. It happened once, happened twice. I thought, but this is unpleasant, you know. And because I'm French, I love to pick argument too. <laughs> so, I mean, it was perfect. But then it was not pleasant. It was not useful. It was not creative. So then I started to look, what happened? What does he do? And so I saw that he would come, and then he would say something which would be the opposite of whatever I was saying, just for the sake of it. And then I would not grasp at it. That was to me a big breakthrough. He would say something, and I would say, mm, that's, mm, that's an idea to consider. Oh, yes, mm, possibly. And so I would not pick an argument at all. I would just kind of, in a way, create space around it. And then he stopped coming for tea. It was not fun anymore. <laughs> but for me, it was a great lesson. And so, in a way, this great questioning is also to learn, to balance. This is something we have to see in meditation. We are not trying to develop a permanent, continuous state. I think often we have this abstract idea that one day my meditation will really, really, really be amazing because all the time I will be in the same state. 
To me, this seems to be the growl of meditation, the kind of... But actually, I don't think this is what we need to do at all. Because there is different condition, inner and outer. There is different energy. Sometimes you feel brighter. Sometimes you have less energy. You feel more sleepy. And then it's more. And our teacher was very, kind of, uh, put a great emphasis on this. To balance the quietness and the vividness. Especially with the questioning. To sometimes, if you become too quiet, to bring a little more questioning. What is this? What is this? Then sometimes if you're a little too, there's a little too much energy and you kind of suddenly feel you're kind of spinning a little, then you're more settling. Maybe you come back to the breath. Maybe you come back to the body. And so trying to find that sometimes we have to equilibrate the two elements, the quietness and the vividness. Sometimes we have to bring a little more vividness to equilibrate, to balance. Sometimes we have to bring a little more calmness to balance. And so in a way, our teacher, Master Kuzan, used to say it was like when we were meditating, first I thought he talked about strawberries. I thought, what are, why is he talking about strawberries? I like strawberries, but this is weird. And then I realized he was talking about chicken. So, but it's the same word in Korean. <laughs> so he was saying we were like a hen hatching eggs. And he said, like when the hen is above the eggs, she's not just sitting there like that. But actually, with her little feet, she's moving the eggs. So the one who kind of at the bottom getting a little cooler, she brings up. So they're a little warmer. The one who are getting too warm, she's bringing down so they get a little cooler. So she's always constantly moving the eggs. First I thought, come on, come on, this is... Seemingly it's true. The, the ends move about the eggs. And it, this way it was saying we need to try to do the same thing when we sit in meditation. To try to, in a way, being aware of the meditative state. Do I need to bring a little more vividness here? Do I need to bring a little more quietness there? And so, in a way, what I would encourage you to do is that as you continue through the retreat, to try to, to, to kind of cultivate experientially the great faith in yourself, in your own potential, in the values that you cherish, like wisdom and compassion, to in a way also cultivate the great courage of really trying to sit, trying to concentrate, trying to inquire, trying to be present, trying to go beyond your habits, and also the great questioning, which kind of opens and is more creative. So that's what I wanted to say tonight. Are there any questions or comments? I have a question. Mm -hmm. um, with uh, some of the teachings I've, I've had, it's um, sort of said that you need to um, develop uh, the calmness. Like, I mean, this is Tibetan sort of terminology so calm abiding 
and then at that point um, try and it's begin cultivating inquiry, analytical meditation, and it's sort of always there's a there's there's is it, there's, there's there's never any clear instructions at which point you're going to be competent to to move on to the next stage, but um, is that is that something which which you also um, endorse as a kind of as, is, are there are there stages? Is it helpful to? Not necessarily. To, to think about it in that way, or is it unhelpful? Well, I think it's in a way what is very important to see is that there are different ideas in different traditions. And that in, in some tradition, and I think it's a good idea, why not? You know, that you start by calm abiding, shine, uh, samatha, and so you, you work more on the concentration, so that to calm the mind, and then once the mind is a little calmer, then either in the Theravada tradition you go for the vipassana, the experiencing of the changing conditioned nature, or in the lactong, in the analytical meditation, you look at different things, death, etc., the preciousness of etc. That's one method. I think in a way, each tradition, and even within different traditions, you have different schools, each school has in a way developed what, I've, what they thought was a good idea. And to me, it's like somebody did it that way, and they thought, this is a good idea. Let's do it this way. And then they continue with it, and so they cultivate a system which works that way, actually. But I would say that the practice of the question of the wadu, like we do here, what is interesting with it is that actually it doesn't start with the same axiom. It doesn't start with the same idea. Because there, with the what is this? You have the two together immediately. So you have the concentration and the inquiry immediately. That's what you do. And what is interesting with it is that it works the same way. At the beginning, it takes time to really get the question. So at the beginning, you actually do more concentration, kind of, what is this? What is this? And you go, what is this? What is this? You know, and then over time, you develop the sensation of questioning. But in it, you have the two together. And to me, I think it's just, again, it's back to the balancing, to the, to the balancing of the two quality of quietness and vividness. I think we need to have the two together. Sometimes, if you put too much emphasis at the beginning on concentration, the problem is that then that's where you stay. And that's what you associate with meditation. And I meet a lot of people who are supposedly doing vipassana when actually I find that they do mainly samatha. They do mainly concentration. And it's not bad to do concentration, but it needs to be with vipassana. They need to be. That's what my, my teacher, Master Kuzan, was so... That was his main message, was song, song, jok, jok. Vivid, vivid, quiet, quiet. You need to cultivate the two together. Then it's, you can cultivate it in different ways. So I think what to me is more important is that whatever way you do it, either together from the beginning or separate, that relatively soon you get to do the two. Because I think it's very essential because they are quite different qualities. Because one... The concentration is to develop 
spaciousness and quietness. And then the inquiry is to develop clarity. So they are basically developing two different qualities within ourselves, which are already there, and we develop more. And it's the two together which then help us to develop creative awareness, which we then can go and use in our daily life. So to me, it's very important to have the two together at some point. The sooner, the better, personally, I would say. But again, it depends where you start from also. If you have somebody who's really very agitated, possibly the only thing they can do at the beginning is concentrate. And then they'll bring more inquiry later. So again, it depends on the conditions. Yes? Um, do you have any suggestions about how to use the inquiry and what, what is this inquiry outside of meditation? Um, I, I'm just asking because today during the meditation period, I found it, I had a, quite a hard time just achieving concentration, so I didn't really get to that stage. But then sitting outside after lunch and looking at something, maybe my problem was that the inquiry would seem too abstract when I was sitting. But sitting outside and looking at the strange branches of those oak trees outside, and I found the question coming back to me. And that, that was much more powerful when I was when I was experiencing something in front of me. The thing with the the questioning is that actually, as Stephen mentioned this morning, what we're trying to do it's really to develop a sensation of questioning. So the words themselves are really not very important. We're really trying to become a question mark. So in a way, what we're trying, when we sit in meditation, what we can try to do is you ask the question, what is this? And generally there is a little pregnant feeling, a little sensation of questioning. And to kind of become more in tune with that. Because I think that's what you will experience outside more easily. Because outside you, what is this? To me, the what is this is actually is a, a way to enter more fully into the moment. Instead of this is this, this is that. It's kind of, what is this? So in a way, it helps us not to fixate on something, but to kind of open to the moment in a different way. But it is true that when we do it sitting throughout the day, it is hard to keep the, 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 the questioning very vivid all the time to the same degree. I think one has to, to accept that, you know, that sometimes it will feel more like a mantra. What is this? What is this? What is this? What is this? And then sometimes it seems to happen by itself that you just have this feeling of questioning. And sometimes it's just staying with the sensation. And sometimes you might need to use the breath, breathing in and then breathing out. What is this? So I think, in a way, one needs not to be too precious about doing the questioning in a certain way. I think we need, over time, to find a way to be with it. But in terms of daily life, what often people find is two different things. One is that they can be, as you describe, especially in nature, you might more easily be in a kind of just opening 
You just say, what is this once? You don't even have to say it, but you feel it. The way you look at something, instead of looking at the oak tree, and it's like this and like that, you see the oak tree in a different way. You see the, the different shape, and you kind of open to the whole existence in a way, of yourself and the oak tree, so to speak. But also what people sometimes find useful is that if they sometimes are caught up in thought or in feelings or sensation, and they say, what is this? And again, it opens up. Instead of being fi fixing the thing, which often we do, it opens up. But again, it will not work all the time. I think one has to just accept. And I think that's why it's good to also have the breath. And then later, Stephen will also bring the listening. So that to me, what I find I do in terms of the practice sitting on the cushion, sometimes I might just do the question by itself. Sometimes I find myself doing the question with the breath. Sometimes I find myself doing the question with the sound. It's not that I question the sound. It's that I'm aware of the sound and at the same time I do the question. And so I find that I kind of combine it. And it's not me deciding, now I'll do it like, like this. It just kind of seems to happen by itself. And so that's why I think it's also useful to play with the foreground and the background. In the foreground, you might have the question, and then in the background, something else. Or you might bring the sound in the background, and then the question. Sound in the foreground, and the question in the background. So in a way, to, to try to play a little also. To, to, to see how can I use these different tools of awareness and how sometimes they can be quite complementary with each other. Yes? Um, I think I heard this right. I think Stephen said this morning about not getting too caught up in the specifics of experience. I, I don't think I quite get this because... Presumably it's my experience that I've got to, that I'm questioning. But presumably it's what he meant, don't, get, don't narrow things down too much, don't narrow down to a very small portion of experience. So the thing, the thing we have to see with the, the questioning is that if you have never done any meditation before, then you just do it. That's what I did. The first time I was told to do it, I had not done anything else, so I just did it. Stephen, coming from the Tibetan tradition, he had all kinds of ideas before he settled down to it. And if you come from the Vipassana tradition, and you're so used to be aware, because that, the experience is your reference point generally, that then it's nearly unavoidable that you will use a question referencing to the experience, but trying as much as possible not to, to fix on anything. But generally, the idea would be that you, it's kind of like throwing the question to the whole moment without any reference point anywhere. So more kind of using the question as a means to open up instead of just kind of fixing on a sound or fixing on a sensation. But if you do Vipassana meditation for a long time, it's unavoidable that you will use it that way toward a thought, toward a sensation, toward a feeling. And this is fine too. I think this is fine. It just depends what background one has. And so one can, again, see that at times we are in different modes. 
Sometimes you might be born in what I would call a questioning vipassana mode, and it will be more referring to something in the experience. And sometimes you will be more in just a questioning mode, and then you just weave the whole moment. But one is not better than the other. I think it's just kind of using a tool in a different way. In the Zazen, you talk about the importance of um, samatha and uh, vipassana. Do you have uh, meditation for developing compassion or like metta um, within Zazen? I will, uh, if I may, I will bring this on the last day actually. But it's a little late in the day, I'm aware of it. But uh, I would say that in the Zen tradition, uh, you don't have, like in the Vipassana tradition, the four Brahma Viharas as a method of practice where you cultivate directly loving kindness, compassion, rejoicing, and equanimity. That you do not find in the Zen tradition. But what you find instead is the Bodhisattva precept and the four vows. And the Bodhisattva precept, uh, I translated them because uh, over time, when I lived in Korea first, I took them, but I had no idea what I was taking. But over time, every two weeks, we, in the monastery, every two weeks, we recite the Bodhisattva precept. Then the lay people, every year, at least once, they will take the Bodhisattva precept. And then over time, as my Korean became better, I started to see that what people did in the monastery was totally according to the Bodhisattva precept. And the main idea of the Bodhisattva precept is compassion. That it's kind of an ethics totally based on compassion, on the, des- on the wish to awaken for the sake of everybody. Same idea with the four vows. And I will talk about this later. The, vow, the first vow is sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. And these four vows we, in the Zen tradition, you recite all the time. Whenever you do a ceremony, that's the first thing you recite. So in a way, the practice of compassion is found in terms of the practicality of it more in terms of daily life, like the Bodhisattva precept and also the four vows. And then I will talk about that later on. And... uh, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.